Hello, Bread of Life. Uh, wonderful to be with you all, uh, despite these kind of strange circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, I just want you to know that setting up this shot, this video th thing, like on the tripod and the camera and everything, has taken me almost as long as writing the actual sermon. And I'm still not completely happy with it as I watch it. Um, it kind of looks like one of those hostage proof of life videos. Like I feel I should be holding a newspaper with a date on it or whatever. But oh, this is what we got to do, right? This is how we have to get through it. So this is actually my first time uh, with your community. So I'm a little disappointed that it has to be this way that we can actually be uh, physically together. I uh, just you know want to want to say I just have great respect for Father O'Dowd for your priest. Um, Something you may not know, which is very, very interesting, is uh, Father O'Dowd has actually lived in the province in Canada that I'm from called Saskatchewan, which uh, I'd be surprised if any of you have heard of. But um, yeah, he lived and worked there for, for I think, a year or two. Um, the other thing is that I am actually a closet Anglican. I love the prayer book. I love the liturgy. And I'm praying that one day I'll be sanctified enough to be a priest. So we'll see. So um, this morning, what I want to do is I've actually taken one of the texts that was one of the readings and, and just hope to walk through that with you. Uh, I, I chose Psalm 139 uh, out of the lectionary. And so that's kind of where we're going. But uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't comment a little bit on the events in our country uh, over the past little while. So... Uh, I'm sure, like like me, many of you were simply horrified by what we saw uh, last Wednesday at the Capitol, the storming of the Capitol, um, which was just looked like a terrorist attack, which it was, right? We're still we're still feeling the fallout out of that, all of us. Um, and, I, and as I was watching that on television, I thought of Psalm 11:3 that that says, "When the foundations are being destroyed." What can the righteous do? When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, because it felt like that, didn't it? It felt like the foundations were, were being destroyed, if not, if not under attack, right? Um, the question is, what can the righteous do? What can the church of Jesus Christ do? What can you do? What can I do? And I think that as I thought about that, I thought one response, which... Uh, may not be the most obvious one, but one response is to actually draw closer to God, to, to do whatever we can to move closer in our relationship to the living God. As Christians, we believe that uh, God is the fount of all wisdom, grace, and love, that the closer we are to him, the closer we are to wisdom, grace, and love. I often use the analogy that if you want to get warm, you move towards the fire. And if we want to know God, we need to move closer to him. And I believe Psalm 139 helps us to do that. I have this uh, uh, in three points. God knows us, how God knows us, and then the difference it makes. God knows us, how God knows us, and the difference it makes. So let's start with God knows us. Um, so Psalm 139, uh, verses 1 to 5, 
Uh, let me just read that for us. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I stand, when I rise. Sorry, you know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying, lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before me, and you lay your hand upon me. So some of the verbs that are used here, God searches us, God knows us, God perceives our thoughts, God discerns our actions, God knows our speech completely, God hems us in, and God lays his hand on us. So this is a summary of some of the actions of God towards human beings. And what we can glean from this is that we are talking here not about some distant cosmic deity, but these are actually the actions of a personal God. God is a being with the ability to know, the ability to perceive, and the ability to interact with created beings. This is the living God. So what is the effect of these actions on the psalmist? As you can imagine, it is quite overwhelming. And, and here we move on to verse 12, or verse 6, sorry. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, we uh, live in an academic community here in Ithaca, New York, and some of you watching this are working hard on a variety of degrees. And so we are trying to manage and steward knowledge, aren't we? we towards the end of gaining a degree or, or working on a postdoc project. But see, the psalmist here is trying to humble us and is trying to tell us that there is a limit to human knowledge. And we don't like this. We don't want to admit that we're powerless, that we're weak, that, that there may be a limit to what we can know. But here's where we find ourselves. This knowledge, these observations are above what the human mind can take in. In verses seven to 10, the psalmist reflects that the rule and reign of God is comprehensive over the created order. This is what um, verses seven, sorry, I'm gonna read seven to nine says. Um, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So what we're seeing here is that there's no place where a human being can go to escape the reign of God. The entire universe is God haunted. And he lists them off, the heights, the depths of the sea, the wings of the dawn, which I don't actually know where that is. If you know, let me know. Um, but God is there too. The far side of the sea. You see, we can't outrun or hide from God. We learned this uh, at the start of the Bible when the first human beings foolishly think they can hide from their creator. Adam and Eve, after, after sinning, they hide themselves behind some bushes when they hear God in the garden. And human beings have been in this divine game of hiding ever since. But the psalmist is saying there is no place where human beings can hide. And what's interesting that I find here is in verse 10, it says, even there, 
your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So you see, no matter where I go in this world, in this universe, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So it's, it's this declaration of comfort and safety that even when we rebel against God, God doesn't rebel against us. Even when we leave God, God doesn't leave us. We, even when we abandon God, God doesn't abandon us. The story of the prodigal son is the story of a young man who rejects his family for selfish pursuits. Things don't work out for him after he has left. He ends up bottoming out, out of resources, out of friends, and he ends up caring for pigs, a Jewish man caring for pigs. There's nowhere lower he can go in terms of life status or, or life standing. But I would suggest that God never let that young man go. Even in the pigsty, God was guiding him. God was holding him fast. And I find this very reassuring in terms of uh, those of us who have friends or family members who have walked away from the faith. Because this tells us that despite how far or how low someone appears to be, they are still in the care of God. Although all the data appears opposite, we have to believe that God, the God who has such comprehensive knowledge and love is still with them. So my first point is God who knows us. Secondly, how does God know us? How does God know all of this? Well, the obvious answer is he's God. But the psalmist gives us an interesting perspective on observation of a further level of God's knowledge of human beings. And we find this in verses 13 to 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So here we have further and deeper descriptions of the knowledge that God has of human beings. But even though we're shown the basis on which God uh, knows us or, or does the things that were listed above. Um, so the psalmist here is actually giving us incredible insights into the source and the origin of human beings. Human beings were created. Uh, creation points to a creator. We are not random compounds of matter pieced together at the end of some time plus matter plus chance blind journey. Secondly, human beings are knit together. That's, it's rather strange imagery, isn't it? Knitting. Um, you know, my, my wife led an initiative at a previous church we served. Uh, we, we discovered that there was a number of women living in poverty who were also expecting children. And so my wife organized um, alongside another social agency. There was a social agency that provides sort of a care package when the child is born to kind of help the, the new mom. And so my, my wife sort of started this initiative where uh, some people in our church would knit little onesies, little very personalized onesies for each child. And as the, as the people would knit together or knit these things together, 
they would pray. They would pray for the mother and they would pray for the child. And so that means that um, the child and the mother were being knit together in love. And, and I think in the same way, God was knitting us together in an environment of love. So if it's true that God has knit us together, that means there are no unwanted human beings on planet Earth. That means that every child is wanted, wanted by God, because he knit them together. Uh, another thing we learn is that human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made. It says, your, your works are wonderful. And here we see the elevation of the status of human beings. Um, this is where we start to come to understand that we are created in the image of God. We, we are image bearers of God. When an artist designs something, there's often some kind of imprint or image uh, that the designer leaves on the signage, the artist leaves on the, on the, the piece. In the same way, because of the intimate involvement of God in the creation of human beings, he has imprinted his image on us. So you are an image bearer of the living God. Um, verses 15 to 16 are, are quite remarkable as well. Um, I read those already. And basically in those passages, we learn that God does not know us at a superficial level. You know, Human relationships are at varying levels, aren't they? We, we have daily relationships, people we, we interact with, maybe at the grocery store, at the pharmacy or something. Um, we have social relationships. These are people we may go to movies with or, or go for coffee with, you know, pre and post COVID, of course. Um, we have people at a private, personal level of a relationship. Um, people that you may share things about, like your dreams or your plans. And then finally, you have an intimate level of relationships. And this is usually a very small group of maybe two or three people, including your spouse. And this is where you share very intimate details of your life, um, past hurt, secret dreams, emotional pain, etc. Now, the thing here that we need to realize is that God's knowledge goes even deeper than that intimate relationship we may have with other people. It's because you are not hidden from God, because he created you in a secret place. And, and the one line that, that blew me away was this one. It says, you saw my unformed body. You saw my unformed body, which I'm like, how is that even possible? How can you see something that is unformed? Stephen Covey, Covey in the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective uh, of highly uh, uh, successful or effective people, one of those two, effective people, I think, says everything has two creations. The first creation is in the mind. The second creation is when the physical product enters the world. And so I think this is what it means when God says he saw our unformed bodies. He saw us before we were us. In the mind of God, you already existed what you would look like, where you would live, your temperament, all of those things were in God's mind before you even entered the world. And so God knows you better than you know yourself. Finally, the difference it makes. We've looked at um, uh, the God who knows us, the basis of that knowledge, and what difference does it make. And we find this in the closing verses of the psalm, and I, I can see my time is getting away with me, so I actually won't 
um, read those because they've already been read already and you can you can look at it later. But what we see here in this section is sort of this brutal honesty of the psalmist about the machinations of, the, of his own heart or of the heart of humanity, right? He, he looks at the world and he sees wickedness. He sees people who are bloodthirsty, people living lives of evil intent, people who blaspheme the name of God. And he, he looks at this array of human degeneracy and, and says, I hate them. I abhor them. I, I have nothing but hatred for them. They are my enemies. And here's where we're going to get really personal. Because even though I've never met most of you, I know there are times when you have felt exactly like the psalmist here. No matter how sheltered a life you have lived, people have entered your life who have hurt you. People have entered your life who have caused you great pain. This is true and this is reality. And if we're honest, we have the same emotional response as the psalmist. I hate that person for what they did to me. And so we all have this potential for our emotional lives to descend into darkness. But praise God, the psalm doesn't end there. It ends with these famous lines, search me, God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What the psalmist is doing here is repenting. He's being honest with himself. He's saying, God, this is me. I have this heart of darkness. But then what he does is he takes the darkness, he takes the sin, and he lays it out before God. He doesn't hide like Adam and Eve. He comes out of hiding and says, I know you know me. I know you know my heart. And I am bringing this out to the surface and asking you to deal with it. Remove that which is offensive and contrary to your nature. Lead me, guide me. For many of us, we lead ourselves, don't we? We, we might give a polite nod to God, but, but the truth is we're in the driver's seats of our lives. We are in control. We have not given up control. So I want to ask you where you are this morning. Do you find yourself like the psalmist harboring anger and hatred towards other people? The question is, then what are you going to do with that? Um, because the reason we hang on to those feelings is it makes us feel good. It's a little bit soothing, but in the end, it's a medicine that kills us. Can I challenge you to do what the psalmist has done here, is to go to God, allow him to take an emotional, spiritual audit of your life, of your heart, see where the darkness is, bring it out into the light, ask for his forgiveness, and then ask him to lead you. I want to close my time with, uh, with a fairly extensive quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, which is all about Christian community. The reason I want to share this is that I, I don't know anyone else who has been able to describe the complexity of the human condition, specifically the human condition in relationship to sin, as Bonhoeffer has. Listen to what he writes here. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner 
is suddenly discovered in their midst. So we remain alone, living with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Sin demands to have a man or woman by themselves. It withdraws them from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin in their lives. And the more deeply they become involved in it, the more disastrous is their isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress, what weakness, what failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also doesn't know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick person. In the presence of a Christian, I can dare to be a sinner. It's not lack of psychological knowledge, but lack of love for the crucified Jesus Christ that makes us so poor and inefficient. I love that last line. It's not the lack of psychological knowledge, but lack of love for the crucified Jesus Christ that makes us so poor and inefficient. In closing, God knows us because he created us. And because he created and knows us, he is the only one who can ultimately heal us. Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to be with you. Thank you, uh, Father O'Dowd, for inviting me into your space, into your community space. Uh, I, I hope this works. I, I haven't really done one of these before, but I hope this medium still still works. So blessings on you. Great to be with you this morning.